Thank you for listening to this presentation hosted by the Centre for Catholic Studies at Durham University in the UK, a centre for Catholic theology in the Public Academy. For more information, go to centreforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following paper was presented in September 2019 as part of a conference on Anglican-Catholic relations marking the 450th anniversary of the 1569 Northern Uprising. The paper is by the Reverend Professor Paul Avies. It is entitled Reconciling Theology, Recognition and Reconciliation, and it is followed by a response by Dr. Theodora Hoxley. So reconciling theology, uh, looking at the twin themes of recognition and reconciliation. My starting point is an informal definition of Christian unity. Informal. Christian unity is a quest to reunite what belongs together but has come apart. Ecumenism is about bringing back together what belongs together. I'll look at each part of that statement in turn, belonging together and bringing together. In the first part, belonging together, I postulate an original or essential unity of the church. To postulate the church's original unity points to its unity, uh, points to its origin in time, and is therefore an historical or empirical statement. As such, it gives several hostages to fortune and is vulnerable to developments in historical research. On the other hand, to affirm the church's essential unity is a theological or dogmatic statement or affirmation. Unity belongs to the essence or being or definition of the church, so that without unity there is no church. Just like historical claims, theological affirmations are also open to critique, to development and refinement. To affirm the church's essential unity remains a confession of faith, as in the creed, I believe, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. In the second part bringing together, I'll approach that theme via the concepts of recognition and reconciliation. Belonging together, first of all. The motivating conviction of the ecumenical movement is that the separated parts of the Christian church belong together. Belong together. This is the basic intuitive affirmation underlying all ecumenical endeavour. It's axiomatic for ecumenical theology that division and separation between communities of baptised Christians is wrong. Ecumenism is premised on the belief that disunity contradicts the nature of the church and is contrary to the will of God. The conviction that Christians and churches belong together includes the historical belief that originally the church was undivided and the theological conviction that the church is essentially indivisible. In both its origin and its essence, the church is one, whichever way you look at it. But what does the phrase, in its origin and essence, mean? This question needs to be answered historically with regard to origin and theologically with regard to essence. The historical and theological answers are intertwined. Ultimately, origin and essence are not different things, but two ways, diachronic and synchronic respectively, we could say, two ways of referring to the indestructible unity of Christ's church. Historically speaking, 
I think it's an implication of what we affirm in the creed regarding the church, especially its Catholicity and apostolicity, that in the beginning the church was single and undivided, that there was originally only one church. When exactly was that, you might well ask, especially the church historians among you? Obviously, we cannot say that the church first became divided at the Reformation, because the split between East and West was cemented five centuries earlier, and the Reformation was the split within the Western church, not the, not the whole church. It didn't directly affect the East. But neither can we say that the church was fully united before the great schism of 1054 between East and West. Because in the patristic period, communities that could not accept the doctrinal decrees of the ecumenical councils were necessarily excluded and condemned and became estranged from the unity of the church. So even patristic Christianity was far from fully united. The period of the early councils was not the golden age of Christian unity. The notion of the undivided church so often appealed to in ecumenical contexts with reference especially to the first millennium, is a romantic illusion. But supposing that we go right back to the apostolic age, the first century, what do we find there? There is plentiful evidence in the New Testament itself of bitter schisms within the communities founded by the apostles, mention of other foundations in 1 Corinthians 3 and a different gospel in Galatians 1, and they went out from us, but they did not belong to us in 1 John 2. So by a process of continual historical regression, we are forced to place the original unity of the church further and further back. The quest for the historical one church is just as problematic, I began to conclude as I thought about this, as the quest for the historical Jesus. Perhaps in our historical quest for the undivided church, we should home in on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon the church, bringing wisdom, eloquence and power. For we are told that the Spirit came when the disciples were all together in one place. Even if we allow that Acts chapter 2 may be an idealised scenario, designed as a reversal of the Tower of Babel, when human speech and human community became fragmented, I think we can still affirm that when the apostles were gathered together in an upper room or wherever, between the Ascension and Pentecost, there was one church. The undivided church existed at that point, that pinpoint in time. When I say that I believe that we must hold to the original unity of the church, its unity in its origin, I think I'm probably using original and in origin in a similar way to the way in which the book of Genesis and the gospel according to St. John uh, begin en archi, in the beginning, where the beginning cannot easily be specified, but is placed at the start of the created historical process. So we might be able to say that before all the vicissitudes of church history there was one church. Before all the ways in which through 20 centuries the empirical unity of the church has been compromised, even shattered, the church was one church. I think it's necessary to postulate the original unity of the church as an historical fact, even if that affirmation is lacking in both precision and assurance. There may be an analogy 
in how we understand the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We affirm that the resurrection is an historical fact and event, even though we can say very little about what actually happened. While the resurrection is historically grounded, it transcends historical inquiry, as all scholars working on that theme find. Similarly, the unity of the Church, while it's historically grounded, transcends historical inquiry. Well, there you are. In that section, I've given a massive hostage to fortune. I'm sure there'll be some comeback on that. So I've been speaking in the historical mode, and now I'm going to say something um, in the theological mode. So theologically speaking. In saying it is necessary, it is necessary to posit the original unity of the church as an historical fact, I have already crossed the line, and some of you will have discerned that already, crossed the line that demarcates history from theology, historical research from theological affirmation. I've moved the argument from historical inquiry into theological reasoning. In passing, however, I'd like to make it uh, clear to forestall any concerns in any of my hearers that I'm not advocating any kind of disjunction between history and theology. I don't think it's possible to do theology without input from historical research. But conversely, I don't believe that historical inquiry can be done without ideological presuppositions, which in the case of church history tend to be largely theological, though not exclusively so. So for me, there can be no watertight separation of theology and history, but rather a cross-fertilization of varying degrees of closeness, cooperation, and mutual interrogation, according to the topic and particular method being employed. So for me, for me personally, the connection between history and theology is very close. That was just a little um, um, uh, declaimer. To return now to the main thread of the argument, I've spoken about origin, which belongs in the category of history. I now move to the language of essence, which belongs in the category of theology. It's an imperative of faith to affirm that the church is essentially, even if not empirically, one. The church is one because Christ is one. The church is one because it is Christ's body. As Ephesians puts it, there is one body and one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. This statement with its seven ones could hardly be more emphatic. Now Richard Hooker, as you know, died in the year 1600 and was the prime architect of Anglican ecclesiology. Richard Hooker, in speaking of the church's unity, echoes Ephesians 4 when he writes this. The unity of which visible body and church of Christ consisteth in that uniformity which all several persons thereunto belonging have, by reason of that one Lord, whose servants they all profess themselves, that one faith which they all acknowledge, that one baptism wherewith they are all initiated. And Hooker continues, The visible church of Jesus Christ is therefore one, in outward profession of those things which supernaturally appertain to the very essence of Christianity and are necessarily required in every particular Christian man. For Hooker, the unity of the church resides in the profession of those matters that, as he puts it, supernaturally appertain to the very essence of Christianity. The essence of Christianity, such a modern-sounding expression, uh, the essence of Christianity for Hooker is given supernaturally 
that is by divine revelation in scripture and includes the unity of the church. In the high priestly prayer of uh, St. John chapter 17, Jesus prays that his own, whom the Father has given him, may be one as he is one with the Father, and one in such a way that the world may be enabled to believe that the Father has sent him into the world. This prayer suggests that the unity of the church was already fragile and under threat when this gospel was composed. But it is also clear that we are meant to understand that the intention of Jesus, with all the authority of his divine mission, was that his community should be visibly one. So the essential unity of the church is secured and underpinned by the prayerful intention of Jesus at the most solemn moment in his destiny. I don't think that's reading too much into John 17. So putting together Ephesians 4 with Richard Hooker's uh, comments and the high priestly prayer of Jesus, I think we can say that the church is single by definition. There cannot exist a church that is not one church. It wouldn't make sense. It would be a contradiction in terms. The Church of Christ cannot be many churches. As Karl Barth once put it, a plurality of churches in this sense means a plurality of lords, a plurality of spirits, a plurality of gods. Bart seems to be saying that unreconciled disunity in the church strikes at the very heart of the Christian faith as it is given in divine revelation. It shatters the integrity of God's work through the church. The affirmation that the church is compelled to make of itself with regard to its original or essential unity is an eschatological affirmation, looking forward to what is promised. That must mean at least two things. First, that affirmation is shot through with a sense of wistfulness, regret and incompleteness for the lack of the unity that is being affirmed as original and essential. And the more strongly that we affirm it, the more we grieve for its absence in the church today. But secondly, the affirmation, being an eschatological one, is also infused with a sense of hope, anticipation and expectation that it might once again be possible to experience the unity of the church. And the more strongly we affirm it, the more we feel that it could be and should be restored. So that confession of the original and essential unity of the church contains an already and a not yet. It says something about the beginning, which demands that we say something about the end. It affirms the essence with the intentionality that the church's existence can be different. When we say the third article of the creed, we are bound to wonder whether the original unity of the church can be restored. Will its disunity one day be healed? If there is promise found above all in the prayer and intention of Jesus, there must surely be fulfilment. But at this point we need to just pause to remind ourselves, I suggest, that while the promises of God in Scripture are irrevocable, as Romans 11.29 tells us, they are not unconditional. For their fulfilment they require us to conform ourselves intentionally to the purposes of God, and to allow ourselves to become instruments of that purpose, all too unworthily and ineffectually, of course. The gospel promises are not 
simple guarantees. They will not come to pass regardless and in any case. So when we speak of eschatological fulfilment, I suggest that we need to gloss that phrase as the possibility of fulfilment. The ecumenical movement itself has consistently seen Christian unity as at once gift and task. We've been exploring the notion of belonging together in connection with a divided church. Things in the world may belong together in different ways, all sorts of things. Cut an apple in half and you have two items that clearly belong together because they're virtually the same. A left and a right shoe also belong together, not because they're virtually identical, in one sense they're opposites, but because they make a pair and it's necessary to have both before you can walk in them. Two siblings belong together, not normally because they are the same, they may be different sexes, sizes, ages, characters and appearances, but because they are usually offspring of the same parents and members of the same family. A wife and husband belong together, not because they are identical, but because of other weighty factors. Their union has been blessed by the Holy Spirit through the church. They have solemnly committed themselves to each other emotionally and physically. They have entered into joint ventures such as bringing up children, the purchase of property and battling through adversity together, but particularly because they each know themselves to be incomplete without the other. So you see I've been raising the stakes through a number of examples. There is a sliding scale of belonging together from the trivial and mundane to the mystical and ontological. Needless to say, the belonging together of the church is firmly at the mystical and ontological end of the spectrum. But this belonging together is not monolithic or monochrome. It's very far from uniformity. I know Richard Hooker, Hooker used the word uniformity, uh, but perhaps in a different sense and context. So the process of bringing back together must be a reunion that does not destroy difference and diversity. It must respect the capaciousness, richness and hospitality of Catholicity. Baron von Hugel described the Catholicity of the Church, this is about a century ago, Baron von Hugel described the Catholicity of the Church as the greatest possible multiplicity in the deepest possible unity. Can multiplicity be brought into unity without ceasing to be multiplicity? How can radical diversity be held together? Can communion include conflict and even contradiction? These are the intractable questions that are endemic to ecumenical theology and indeed to all ecclesiology in the divided ecumene. There's a vast and daunting agenda here for ecclesiologists and ecumenical theologians to get to grips with for the good of the church. I can't actually embark on uh, any further on this point the discussion of difference and diversity, conflict and consensus in the church, though um, I don't mind saying that I wrestle with those in issues continuously, as I know others of you do. Here I simply want to register my sensitivity to these issues to pave the way for the second half of my paper, which is concerned with bringing back together what belongs together. And here, in a moment, I will look at the motif of bringing back together under the rubrics of recognition and reconciliation. Sorry. Thank you. So, 
bringing together or bringing back together. First of all, some thoughts on recognition. And we know, uh, those of us involved in any kind of ecumenical activity, that mutual recognition of one degree or another is pretty, pretty critical. I'm looking at it first in a more human and, um, if you like, anthropological way. To be recognised by others, especially those whom we respect, esteem and look up to, is a universal human longing and need, and is a visceral desire. It belongs to our very survival. An individual who is consistently unrecognised by any of those persons around them is invisible and hardly exists. He or she is devalued and dehumanised, a truly displaced person, indeed hardly a person but the mere shadow of a human being. This is because we are constituted as persons by the recognition of others, held in our being by their gaze, even if it is not always entirely beneficent. The recognition accorded especially by significant others is constitutive of our identity. First parents, especially the mother, I would say, then siblings and other close relatives, then friends and playmates, then teachers and other mentors, including uh, clergy. Such acts of sustained recognition give us our place in the world. They are the psychological building blocks of individuation. The fabric of human society is made up of perceptions and practices of mutual recognition. Social interaction is infused with reciprocal recognition. So the word recognition covers a world of human experience. But if everything is recognition, then nothing is recognition. So analysis and interpretation of the term is called for, uh, briefly in this case. To recognise, to recognise someone or something is literally to rethink them. To revisit them in thought, to do a double take in which the meaning or significance of that person or thing becomes more apparent to us. We've known them all along in an incohate way, but when we are prompted or compelled to take a second look, we see more clearly and deeply into what they are, what they stand for, and their relevance to us, for good or ill. We find that what we see lines up with the idea we already have in our mind, but it also serves to educate and correct our thinking about the recognised object, so to rethink it. We become aware we may have misinterpreted our first glance, misrecognised it, so to speak. And then a kind of anamnesis, anamnesis takes place, akin to the anamnesis of the Eucharist, an intentional act of remembering that retrieves the object from the past and brings it into the foreground of the present moment in its presence, integrity and effect. Although the verb to recognise and the noun recognition literally suggest an intellectual cognitive process, the act of recognition also involves the emotions and the will. There is an intentionality in the act of recognition, a logic of self-involvement, sometimes a transition to attachment. Some moments of mutual recognition carry an erotic charge. Two people falling in love is an example of total mutual recognition infused with total mutual self-involvement. In the Christian life, there are liminal events of mutual recognition that are both solemn and joyful. Many of these are sacramental. Baptism and confirmation, ordination, the exchange of marriage vows, profession within a religious community, induction into a new role or ministry within the church. 
Through such liminal events or transitional experiences, one is given worth and value in order that one may contribute added value to the community uh, with which one has been put into a new relationship. Such formalised and ritualised acts of recognition are carefully prepared for and have consequences. We feel different afterwards. Our perspective on life and on the other party or parties who are involved is changed. Our self-recognition is qualitatively enhanced. We begin a fresh page of our life that stretches into the foreseeable future. Recognition is only the beginning. It is an epistemic condition of possibility. It makes further steps in fellowship possible. As several benchmark studies, anthropological and theological, have shown, there is an element of gift-giving in any act of recognition that is not merely casual or incidental. In mutual recognition, there is generally an exchange of gifts. The best gift that one can give to an otherwise well-provided person is the gift of being valued, of enhanced recognition. As the mention of the gift or exchange of gifts suggests, to intentionally recognise someone and to express it in words accompanied by a gift or token or in words alone or in a gift or token without words, whatever, such an action of recognition is performative. It is an interpersonal transaction in which a threshold has been crossed both ways by both parties. Words that award recognition are speech acts. They effect what they declare. There is a nuanced vocabulary around acknowledgement and recognition in various European languages, classical and modern, and this has flowed into theological discourse in connection especially with the themes of justification and church unity. The longing for justification before God and by God that we find in the troubled soul before it receives assurance of salvation could be seen as a thirst for divine recognition from above to below. And in ecumenical theology, mutual recognition followed by acts of reconciliation is a well-travelled pathway to deeper unity. The Second Vatican Council, for example, gives recognition to non-Roman Catholic baptised Christians when it says, all who have been justified by faith in baptism are members of Christ's body and so are deservedly recognised as sisters and brothers in the Lord. Sometimes, and we find this too in ecumenical theology, we use the more objective, less emotionally laden terms acknowledge or acknowledgement, which may be in any case more appropriate to the recognition of an institution or a state of affairs. To acknowledge can have the minimal meaning of to grudgingly accept. And a slightly enhanced meaning of to acknowledge approximates to to tolerate and suggests a kind of coexistence rather than a dynamic towards unity in some form. We may also recognise a person in a dispassionate way with minimal emotional investment. That is simply who they are. Um, recognise a, a newsreader or a uh, weather person on the television or computer screen. Uh, we don't feel very involved in that. We're there to receive the information and we trust they'll give it in a, in a uh, pleasant way. We can also have a strong emotional reaction, favourable or unfavourable, to figures from the past or present whom we recognise but with whom we have no personal uh, relationship. Martin Luther and John Calvin. Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin. John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Marilyn Monroe, Putin... Trump and the only Boris. Mm -hmm. right? 
see them and you have a reaction, positive or negative, I'm not saying. But to recognise someone in a scenario of personal encounter is different. There we give them our full attention and so become vulnerable to how they're going to reciprocate. This all carries a strong existential freight. It is emotionally and volitionally self-involving. It makes a difference to our sense of self and to our well-being, to either enhance or diminish it. It can alter the direction of our lives, a scenario of personal encounter where there is reciprocity of recognition. And so it is between the churches, as I'll try to show as I draw the threads together shortly. In recognition, and this is our theme in the present section, in recognition we can identify, I think, three interlinked spheres, three foci. One's self, one's God, and the wider world. Studies of recognition have spoken of self-recognition, akin to growth in self-knowledge, recognition of God, that is of God in conversion and by God in justification, and mutual recognition within unfolding human relationships. But these are not three self-contained and separate areas of experience, but are interlinked and overlapping. They all take place before the face of God, Coram Deo. So let's look at these one by one, very briefly. Number one, self. Self-recognition includes a sense of a self that is empty and needy without God. And I don't need to attribute the following quotation... You have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Now moving on to uh, some centuries, in the opening paragraph of his Institutes of the Christian Religion, John Calvin linked the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves as together comprising the content of true wisdom. Again moving on in time, the Reformed theologian Friedrich Schleiermacher develops Calvin's insight, arguing that our pre-reflective self-consciousness contains within it a sense of absolute dependence upon an infinite creative and sustaining power. So this tradition is saying that selfhood and godhood and the perception of each belong together in Christian theology and experience. Two, God. Conversion and justification of the work of God upon the human self. Conversion is an act within the self that reorientates it towards God, oneself and the world. Justification is an act on the part of God that restores the believer to fellowship with God and breathes new life into all that person's relationships. When God recognises a person in justification, God causes them to live before God's face, to live in God's presence and favour. These acts of conversion and justification ought not to be conceived individualistically, I say. They always have a social or communal dimension, pointing to the social implications of recognition, its repercussions within the world. So number three, the world, recognition in relation to the world, very, very concisely. The infinite number of acts of mutual recognition of varying degrees of informality or formality, casualness or intensity, constitute the daily business of human beings, the fabric of social interaction, and actually make the world go round. But as understood in Christian theology, these actions of recognition are not purely imminent, secular processes, but are informed by the presence of the image of God in the other. The Christ in one is responding to the Christ in the other, we might even say. Through the work of the ecumenical movement, especially its faith and order dimension, 
the historic churches have increasingly been enabled to offer various degrees of formal recognition to each other on the basis of a shared faith and common baptism or process of Christian initiation. The churches have acknowledged that the sacrament of baptism performed in the Trinitarian name incorporates us into the one body of Christ. They have also seen each other in conjunction with that as sharing in the apostolic mission of the church. It is as though they have looked at each other with fresh eyes, recognised each other. They have said in effect, in effect, yes, I see we are alike in many ways. We are both engaged in the Lord's business. We are both part of something much bigger than either of us. The heart of the matter is in you just as it is in us. We cannot deny the ecclesial reality of each other's faith, sacramental life and ministry. But then the churches go on to say, but our journey to fuller mutual recognition has also shown us that there are some important areas in which we are not the same. We do not quite match up with what with regard to what we each regard as essential for the church. There is not enough symmetry for us at the present time for us to realise full sacramental communion. We have more work to do. The challenge is daunting, but we both believe that what is humanly impossible is possible with God. That critical point of mutual recognition that brings joy to the angels in heaven brings with it also the sombre realisation that it does not go far enough, that we now face the further task of ecclesial reconciliation. So now I come to my last section be glad to know. Some thoughts on reconciliation. Reconciliation is the word that ecumenical theology often uses to describe the process of churches drawing tangibly and concretely closer together. To reconcile, generally speaking, is broadly to bring two opposed realities, they may be beliefs, demands or states of affairs, two opposed realities into accord or into harmony. To reconcile is to resolve differences and even to bring enemies to be at peace with one another. But I think we should ask whether the term reconciliation is appropriate for the state of interchurch relations today. Mutual persecution and the trading of insults and anathemas has largely ceased between churches, though I'm afraid it still goes on quite a lot within them. (laughs) Churches are talking to one another at all levels of their life, including theological dialogue. There are innumerable personal friendships across denominational boundaries and conditional Eucharistic hospitality is offered by many churches. I suggest, though, that reconciliation need not necessarily imply that the parties concerned have been living in a state of mutual enmity or hostility. While this has obviously often been the case in the past, today hostility mainly manifests itself within churches and world communions Uh, rather than between them, as I've already said. And it does so in the form of ideological warfare for the dominant ground and place of power in that church and communion. And this is true both of the Roman Catholic Church and of the Anglican communion of churches. So in that respect, reconciliation is still required uh, within those two ecclesial bodies, very different in their structure, though they are. 
But I would also argue that reconciliation, albeit in a milder sense, is still needed, even when churches and groups within them already tolerate and even respect one another, perhaps already consulting and cooperating with each other to some extent, but crucially, remaining out of full sacramental communion. The result is that the wounds of division in the body of Christ do remain largely unhealed. Reconciliation is often called for between friends, between family members, between married couples or lovers who have become estranged. Then we must learn to relate to one another in a fresh and positive way. Reconciliation, grounded in mutual recognition, is still the pathway that we follow within the ecumenical movement towards the goal of full visible communion. To be reconciled can mean to be brought together, to interface, to stand four square with each other, to be positioned vis-à-vis. In that respect, reconciliation flows out of recognition. In thinking about the topic of reconciliation, I've been gripped by an insight of the poet Shelley. Reconcile thyself with thine own heart, and with thy God, and with the offended world. This quotation suggests that reconciliation begins within ourselves, that reconciliation with God is pivotal, and that reconciliation must then extend to the rest of the world that is offended and wounded by what in us and in our relation to God needs to be put right. So, reconcile thyself with thine own heart, and with thy God, and with the offended world. These three foci of reconciliation, self, God and the world, you will have uh, already noticed, I hope, correspond to the three spheres where recognition happens. Um, Self, God and the world. So both recognition and reconciliation can be seen, if if you follow uh, my uh, uh, attempt at an argument, uh, to take place in relation to those three spheres of self, God and world. So let's comment briefly on each of those Uh, again, but this time in relation to reconciliation, self. The first arena of reconciliation is an interior matter. To be reconciled to one's own heart, as Shelley puts it, one's inner life, the deepest springs of thought and action. This puts me in mind of the words of Psalm 42, which in the Book of Common Prayer, 1662, reads, Why art thou so full of heaviness, O my soul, and why art thou so disquieted within me. Inner turbulence cries out to be addressed and resolved. The Scottish theologian James Denny, who died in 1917, wrote that what men crave to be reconciled to is life, the conditions of existence in their sternness and transiency. So alienation from our deeper selves is the first object of the journey of reconciliation. God The second arena of reconciliation that is actually intimately related to the first is to be reconciled to God. As St Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, all this is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself and entrusting the ministry of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Those are like hammer blows, one after the other. Reconciled, reconciliation, reconciliation, reconciled. 
How thought-provoking that St Paul writes to converts, to Christians, urging them to be reconciled to God. I'm not going to go down that path now, but I think it's really worth pondering. Shelley's third area of reconciliation is the offended world, so world. The world is the entire human community, the social world that God so loved that he gave his only begotten son, John 3.16 of course. Our situation is that the world has indeed taken offence at the church and the world has good cause to be offended by the church, especially at the present time. The catalogue of the church's failings, sins and crimes is crushing. The progressive de-Christianisation of the Western world in recent times must be laid at least in part at the door of the church itself. We know what must be done to be reconciled to the offending world, repentance, reform, purification, reparation. Ecumenical agreement works for sufficient, sorry, ecumenical reconciliation works for sufficient agreement in faith, order and practice for two or more churches to begin to live as one, as one, to worship, to decide and to evangelise as one for their mutual enrichment and empowerment. They remain distinct, discrete, embedded in their uh, own traditions, but at the same time mutually receiving, organically interacting, not enclosed and sealed up, not manning the barricades against one another. This is what I understand by the term that has sometimes been used in dialogue involving Anglicans and Roman Catholics, full visible communion. There can be no turning back from the venture of Christian unity, no losing hope, because as Christians and churches we are called to the apostolic ministry of reconciliation. Pursuing the cause of unity involves a ministry of reconciliation with regard to the beliefs and practices of parties who seem to stand far apart on certain matters. Such a ministry of reconciliation is an inescapable stage on the path that leads to the ultimate goal of ecclesial communion or sacramental fellowship, communio in sacris. Finally, finally, we might recall that reconciliation also has a more pa passive sense, which I think is to be avoided in this context. To be reconciled to something might mean to accept a state of affairs, to be resigned to it, to live with it without repining. Edmund Burke wrote, it so happens, custom reconciles us to everything. Custom reconciles us to everything. No feature of Christianity is probably more customary to us than the divided state of the church, ecclesial fragmentation. Custom, what you're used to, habitude, has reconciled us to the scandal and shame of church disunity. What has happened to the Christian church over 2,000 years, the progressive dismemberment of the body, does not trouble the conscience over much. It doesn't keep us awake at night, most of us. It doesn't make us tremble before the altar. And that is an intolerable fact, theologically, spiritually and morally intolerable. Striving for Christian unity is to cease the toler to tolerate the intolerable. All kinds of justifications have been put forward to numb the Christian conscience to this scandal. First, there is the claim of exclusivity. Our church is the church. That gambit attempts to put division outside the church. Then there is the appeal to an invisible church. The unity of the invisible church is indestructible, so division in the visible church doesn't matter all that much. 
That I find a grossly dualistic and incoherent ecclesiology. Then there is the value-added argument, even. Division brings variety, and variety brings enrichment, so the church actually benefits from disunity. I have come across that argument in an academic uh, work. That is perhaps the most perverse justification for disunity I've ever come across. Let us sin that grace may abound. <laughs> now, I'm coming to my conclusion now. The answer that I believe refutes all those evasions is found in Eucharistic ecclesiology, the theology of communio koinonia. It depends on a realist understanding of sacramentality and draws out its implications. It begins by affirming that the baptismal unity of Christians in the body of Christ is both mystical and visible. In other words, unity is sacramental, an outward visible sign of an inward spiritual grace. By baptism, Christians are placed in a real and ontological connection to Jesus Christ and to each other through the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12:13, for example. Baptism places us within the realm of sacramentality of the church as the body of Christ. That sacramental communion through baptism finds continual renewal and fulfilment in the Eucharist. So Eucharistic communion is the birthright of all the baptised. Eucharistic communion is the birthright of all the baptised. When, for whatever reason, Christians are unable to consummate their baptism or communion in the Eucharist, they're being deprived of their birthright. I'm not pointing the finger, because if you think about it, that state of affairs applies, in one way or another, to all Christians, all the baptised, all the faithful in the world. None of us is in full visible communion with our fellow members of the body, and there is no church that is in full visible communion with all other churches. All the churches are implicated in this fall from grace, this primeval fall of the church. All churches have fallen short of the baptismal, ecclesial vocation to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Surely we cannot be reconciled to that state of affairs. So what are we going to do, by God's help, to help to restore ecclesial communion in Christendom? The Holy Spirit is the spirit of communion. As we work for unity in prayer and thought, word and deed, we must surely put our trust in the reconciling spirit. Amen. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Um, and thank you, Paul, for such a, a rich paper. Just so much to pick up on there. Um, so I'm just going to take two bits and run with them, and we'll see where we end up. And I want to begin with, with Wittgenstein on the subject of recognition. This is him. Asked, did you recognise your desk when you entered your room this morning? I should no doubt say certainly. And yet it would be misleading to say that an act of recognition had taken place. It is easy to have a false picture of the processes called recognising, as if recognising always consisted in comparing two impressions with one another. It is as if I carried a picture of an object with me and used it to perform an identification of an object as the one represented by the picture. Now what Wittgenstein's doing in that section of the philosophical investigations is a kind of exercise in philosophical asceticism or, or perhaps more simply weeding. And his target is very complicated accounts of mind and meaning. And his purpose is to turn our attention away from those tangled and overgrown theories towards our very ordinary exchanges, our ordinary ways of using language and the forms of life in which we use them. 
So part of his point there is that philosophy is primarily a tool for weeding and untangling. It must know when to stop trying to explain. And part of his point as well is to deconstruct the strange image of ourselves that results from those more elaborate theories of mind and meaning. It's the sort of images of us stuck inside ourselves, specifically our heads, sort of meaning and intending things, a bit like a radio observatory, sort of sending bleeps into space in the hope that someone or something will pick them up. Wittgenstein says, no, we, we are human, social, embodied creatures. We communicate. So this is him on the subject of shopping, for example, showing the kind of tangle we can get ourselves into. I send someone shopping. I give him a slip marked five red apples. He takes the slip to the shopkeeper, who opens the drawer marked apples. Then he looks up the word red in a table and finds a colour sample opposite it. Then he says the series of cardinal numbers, I assume he knows them by heart, up to the word five. And for each number, he takes an apple out of the drawer. It's in this and similar ways that one operates with words. It's a parody, of course, and again, he's just turning our attention back from kind of ghostly mental processes and ghostly mental objects towards ordinary ways of operating with language. So what's that got to do with ecumenism? Well, I want to turn our attention as well to ordinary practices of recognition. But before I do that, I want to talk a bit about reconciliation. So alongside sacrifice and redemption, reconciliation is one of the most important ways that St. Paul has about talking, talking about what God has done, what God is doing in Christ. And so I want to take this, this Paul's work further by looking at St. Paul's theology of reconciliation. So the first point is reconciliation is God's initiative and Paul could not emphasise this more strongly the whole argument of the first half of the letter to the Romans is driving that point home. There is no one righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we are utterly unable to justify ourselves. And it's at this point, while we were weak, while we were sinners, while we were enemies, that God acts unilaterally through Christ to reconcile us. So that language of reconciliation, catalasso, catalage, is about exchanging a, a relationship of enmity for one of peace and goodwill. But he's putting that existing social language to new use. Reconciliation is God's unilateral overcoming of the boundaries between God and us. A bit more on that later. Second point, reconciliation has concrete effects in the overcoming of boundaries between human beings. Basically, God's overcoming of division and hostility between God and humanity results in the overcoming of division and hostility between human groups. For Paul, the most significant boundary in view is between Jews and Gentiles, and again, more on that a bit later. But it's not just that division that's overcome. We have that text in Galatians. There is no longer Jew or Greek, no longer slave or free, there is no longer male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And it's important to get the relationship right between those two, between God's overcoming of the boundaries between us and God, and then the overcoming of human boundaries that results from it. Um, I'd like to conduct a science experiment at this point, but I, I don't want people passing out, um, so I'll, I'll describe it instead. If you hold your breath long enough, 
you will find that your chest begins to move, begins to jump. It's quite good as a cure for hiccups. And that's because physiologically, breathing happens the other way around from what you imagine. So we usually think that we suck air in through our mouths and noses and our chest expands. It's actually the other way around. So your intercostal muscles lift your rib cage up and out and your diaphragm draws down and air is pulled in through your mouth and your nose. It's our being expanded by the experience of God's love for us while we are still sinners that draws others in. So just as when our chest expands, we will breathe in unless we're holding our noses and closing our mouths. If you have really received that gift of reconciliation, and it's not a one-off, if you have really been expanded by God's grace in that way, you will become part of that flow of reconciliation to others unless you actively block it. Just read through the Gospels with those goggles on and, and see how much of what Jesus says is about being a channel for the forgiveness and the reconciliation that you have received from God. How much of his criticism is directed against those who refuse to hand on what they have received or seek to control and arbitrate it. So being reconciled means becoming part of the flow of God's grace. So third point, those concrete effects are evident in the church. More specifically, the church is what comes into being as the boundaries between the chosen people and the Gentiles are overcome. And let's not miss the political implications of this. So Jimmy Dunn, later this parish, um, Jimmy Dunn's work on Paul and the law has done a lot to rescue Paul from from the misfortune of of mutual post-Reformation mangling, showing that the works of the law that Paul is is criticising, circumcision, festivals, food laws, not being attacked because they're works as such, but because of their function in first century Palestine. So in a context where Jewish religion and culture are under threat from assimilation and repression, these practices specifically have become weaponized as ethno-nationalist identity markers. I'm putting that very densely for the sake of brevity. But it means that those parts of the law have become the defining identity markers. To have them is to be in, not to have them is to be out. Strangers to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world as the letter to the Ephesians puts it. And Paul's theology of reconciliation takes shape as he discovers that those boundaries of the law, the boundaries that he was on the right side of, that he enforced, have been overcome. They've been overrun like a dam bursting under the weight of grace that is coming from God. And what he's wrestling with in Romans and elsewhere is the realisation that what is overcome in Jesus Christ is not just a particular boundary, Jew, Gentile, and a particular set of requirements, the law, but the whole idea of God's grace being restricted to a particular group simply by virtue of it being a particular group, male, female, slave, free, and so on. What is overcome in Jesus is any such boundary to the grace of God which will flow as far as we will let it. So that letting go of the covenant boundary is what it means for the Jewish people to become a blessing to the nations. They are chosen, but their being chosen does not preclude others being called. So as Flannery O'Connor puts it, here comes everybody. So the last point, it's bigger than the church. 
So when that beautiful hymn in Colossians says that in Christ God was pleased to reconcile all things to himself, all is tapanta. The scale of what is reconciled in Christ is cosmic. It's bigger than just human creation. It's also eschatological. So it flows through us. It has to flow through us. That's the way it works. But it's bigger than us. So back to recognition, because I think some of the passages in which that understanding of what God is doing in Christ is most evident are in the book of Acts, and they involve recognition. So that metaphor of breathing gives us a helpful image of the relationship between God's initiative and our response. Our being expanded draws others into the space of reconciliation. The initiative is God's, and his freely given grace will flow if we do not hinder it. And in the narratives of Acts, the incorporation of Gentile Christians into the early church is framed in just these terms as not hindering God. So in the account of Peter's vision in the house of Simon the Tanner, God makes the first move, telling Peter, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. And as Peter is recounting that to Cornelius, the Holy Spirit comes upon all those present in what's clearly presented as a second Gentile Pentecost. And again, the emphasis falls on God's initiative in giving the Holy Spirit before these Gentiles have even received the baptism of water. And because the Holy Spirit has ignored the boundary, Peter follows. Can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? He arrives in Jerusalem and he tells the brethren, if then God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, Who was I that I could hinder God? So not hindering God is perhaps the best way of characterising human action in response to God's initiative of reconciliation. God hasn't made a distinction, and therefore the Holy Spirit tells Peter not to make any distinction, and the Christian community not to make any distinction. God leads, and we follow by getting out of the way, by not hindering. And that's the equivalent of Paul's not counting of sins in that, in that Second Corinthians passage where he talks about God's re- reconciliation taking the form of not counting our sins against us. What is counted, of course, is Abraham's faith. So being reconciled takes the form of a responsive letting go, an open-handedness with mercy received. And in that example, reconciliation does mean rethinking. But it's not just a double take. It's not something we've seen before but didn't recognise the significance of. It's something completely new. It's something we haven't known before. Recognition is, okay, God, you're doing that. And that is part of God's work of reconciliation. God is running ahead and we are catching up, waiting to recognise to become part of it. So let's loop back to to Wittgenstein and just think about ordinary practices of recognition. In ecumenical discussions of recognition, we get so far with it as an image and then we start wanting terms and conditions. So recognising baptism, okay. Recognising Eucharist, do we believe the same things about what we're doing? Were you thinking about the colour red when you got the apples out of the drawer? Recognising orders, let's not even go there. But in the ordinary run of things, we do recognise. We recognise being ministered to, being fed, being graced, being blessed, even sometimes being one. I work in spiritual direction, and sometimes this person I'm directing is a minister of another tradition. 
I can't but recognise the fruits of the Spirit present in that person's ministry. Um, I can't direct them sort of with my fingers crossed, hypothetically. So we experience these ordinary kinds of recognition without thinking about terms and conditions. And when we do think about them, it's worth thinking about how those conversations about the details depend on a kind of recognition. To talk about what you are doing differently, we need what the ethnographer James Clifford calls an abstract plane of similarity. So to understand what is different about to our childbirth practices, I must have an underlying understanding that childbirth is a common human experience. This then allows me to point out ways in which this sameness is done differently. A difference is posited and simultaneously transcended. A covert recognition is already at work there. So just to conclude with a few examples, how is the Holy Spirit at play in that gap between the same and the different and the movement between the two? What are we being invited to? How can we step into what God is doing? That kind of recognition goes on not just in interactions between representatives of denominations, but in the interdenominational soup that is increasingly prevalent. So for my own millennial generation, denominational boundaries barely figure. Are we being invited here to think about how the Holy Spirit is already overrunning the boundaries? What does not hindering look like in our context? In international contexts here in the UK as well, we also have the same mix and match approach, whether it's immigrants slash expats wanting to worship in the same language or cultural group, or local people who don't bother too much with the differences. Or in rural areas where shrinking numbers of ministers mean that people just go to one another's churches. What's going on there? What are we being invited to discern and to discover? There'll be plenty of examples, so let me not multiply them. Um, Let me just conclude by asking, if meaning is found in our ordinary and unreflected exchanges, in our instinctive recognition and communication, what might God be communicating to us there? And how might we become part of the flow of it? Let me thank Paul again for such, such a rich beginning. Thank you.